If you are someone who is interested in non-monogamy, if you're curious about opening up your relationship, this is a great podcast episode for you. I talk with Dr. Stephanie K. Webb from Unscripted Relationships. She also has an introductory course to opening your relationship online at www.unscriptedrelationships.com. Without giving too much of it away, I will say that one of the biggest takeaways for me is that society pushes a script on us that we aren't complete alone and that we need a person, our better half, in order to make us feel complete. And Dr. Stephanie does a great job at talking through that and talking through the importance of uh, self-awareness and self-reflection and being able to reflect on your experiences in order to teach yourself to be able to like take care of yourself so that you can be a whole person and then make the decision about you know what it is that you want as a whole human being. Um, rather than reaching out for the sake of like finding your other half or better half. So the I like the wordplay. I love the name unscripted relationships because it's it's not something traditionally by the books. A lot of us weren't taught how to do this. We're learning it along the way through podcasts, reading, um, conversations with friends, and that's our own experiences. So before I get into the notes real quick, I want to thank Dating Positives for supporting Something Positive for Positive People. If you're someone who is STI positive and you're fearful of having that conversation about disclosure or you're fearful of being rejected for your positive status, and I encourage you to check out Dating Positives. They also have a a blog called Waxo that I write for regularly. And if you need help with having that disclosure conversation, I write about disclosing um, in casual dating your HSV status and dealing with rejection as well. So hop on over to Waxo, W-A-X-O-H dot com and you can read that article. And I'll also have on there um, my experience with taking the online course to opening your relationship that I took with Unscripted Relationships. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. Now, some of the notes that I took, I'm not deleting that. (laughs) Uh, We talk about fetishization and systematic racism. We talk about um, monogamy and how it signifies goodness. We also talk about uh, love and commitment. We talk about boundaries versus rules. We talk about cheating. I had this idea in my head that polyamorous people couldn't cheat. Everyone knows that their partner is having sex with someone else, so there's no such thing as cheating, right? Wrong. <laughs> so I'm thankful that Dr. Stephanie was able to define cheating for us, and we were able to move forward and debunk that myth that I had in my mind. And throughout this podcast, you'll see that It's important to challenge your own uh, opinions with actual experiences and being able to talk through that kind of stuff. Um, We talk about compulsory monogamy. We talk about uh, labels and their importance. And then the importance of really taking the time to think about what you want. So I encourage you to check out this episode if this is something that you may be interested in um, or if you may be considering it or if it's something that's come up and you may not have a great understanding of what it is. Dr. Stephanie is a great resource and I encourage you to check her out on her website unscriptedrelationships.com or you can follow her on Instagram at unscriptedrelationships and be sure to check out her um, 
Introduction to Open Relationships course. And the last thing I want to let you guys know is that we have t-shirts for something positive for positive people. They're going for $25. If you're interested, shoot me a message and um, we can make that transaction happen. All of the money is going to be a donation to something positive for positive people. I want to get the website up so that people are able to find out what it is that we do outside of just the podcast because there's a lot of outreach stuff. There's a lot of connecting people to support groups, social groups. Um, I want to be able to raise money so that I can pay for the people um, who are newly diagnosed, who need more sex education, who need mental health work, uh, mental uh, professional mental health assistance. And these are just things that I'm unable to provide myself. I'm a great listener, but I'm not qualified to do what may be needed or what's being asked of me so with the money that we raise from the t-shirts that's kind of going to be where we get the ball rolling on making this thing happen for people Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a hub of sex-positive resources, including some great Instagram pages that I follow, one of which is Unscripted Relationships. I have the owner of that page here, Dr. Stephanie K. Webb, who's going to state her... Are those your pronouns? Her, she? Yeah. <laughs> her, she. That made me want chocolate. Uh, <laughs> we're going to be talking about what she does. So what are your credentials because you have a lot of them and I'll butcher them. <laughs> Hi everybody, as Courtney said, I'm Dr. Stephanie Webb. You'll see my moniker is SK Webb just because Stephanie Webb is, you know, there's a lot of us. Um, I have my PhD in communication. My focus is on interpersonal and family relationships, particularly from a critical lens. Um, I studied monogamy and um, consensual non-monogamies as well as other things like comic book studies and things like that. So you'll hear me <laughs> talk about those as well. Um, I also work in fitness and movement, and so sometimes that also informs the way in which I talk about the world and relationships and how we connect to each other. It's interesting that you study monogamy because it's very easy. It's just you and I are in a relationship. We only have sex with one another. We claim one another. Why would you study that? Yeah, so when we talk about monogamy, we talk about a lot of different things, and it's very culturally rooted. And so that's part of why I decided to look at it. I went into grad school actually with the intention of studying polyamory specifically because there wasn't a lot of people doing this when I started doing it. Um, there were very few researchers. Uh, Eli Sheff was one of them. She's one of the biggest ones who studies polyamorous families, particularly children. Christian Kless is another one. He's a British researcher. And there were a few others, but not a whole lot when I first started doing this. Um, so when I started grad school, I really wanted to talk about polyamory, but I realized that I needed to have an understanding of what was going on in culture now. And so I define monogamy as uh, physical and emotional exclusivity. Um, and that can range in different ways. It depends on how you define physical and emotional exclusivity. And so we have this assumption, this understanding that people just know what monogamy is. They just know how to define it. And there's lots of different gray areas in there. Um, there's also this concept of compulsory monogamy, which is what I really do work with. Compulsory monogamy is the societal understanding that monogamous relationships are the default. Um, it's the reason why when I get up in front of people and I say I'm polyamorous, people ask me, well, when did you decide to become polyamorous? And I don't have essentially the same idea to ask them, well, when did you decide to become monogamous? It's because it's compulsory, because we exist in a world where monogamy is it's expected as a result of it being expected we have this idea of heteronormativity 
um, which I advance and talk about mononormativity, which assumes that mono relationships are not only normalized um, as the way in which we should do relationships, but they're also signifiers of goodness. Um, they're signifiers of being good parents, for example, being good people. People who engage in non-monogamous relationships historically have been seen as cheaters. So that's why a lot of the conversations, especially intro conversations to people who, when I talk about um, ethical non-monogamy or polyamory, they say, oh, so you just have your cake and eat it too. Um, those are the things that are asked. Like, why have cake if you can't eat it? <laughs> right? Um, and so there's, there's all kinds of different sort of framings within which folks who have done compulsory monogamy perceive polyamory. And so as a result of that, there's a lot of sort of debunking the myths that you have to do if you do step into consensually non-monogamous relationships. Um, but for me, the things about monogamy that were interesting to me were twofold. Essentially, the first one is that cheating still happens, and it often happens in a choice basis. It's someone who keeps doing it. And oftentimes we cheat to uphold monogamy. We don't want to claim another relational identity. Instead, we cheat so that our partner has to maintain monogamy and we can do whatever we want. <laughs> There's this wonderful book called The Monogamy Gap. Um, I think his name is by Eric Anderson, I think. Um, and he studies essentially college athletes male-identified college athletes and because they have the highest rates of infidelity. And they talk about this idea of they want to maintain the guise of monogamy because they're not doing any kind of thing that would be stigmatized, but they do cheat because they can, but then they can also hold their partner to that double standard of maintaining monogamy. So they get something out of being in a cheating relationship, right? So that's one kind of element of compulsory monogamy that I find fascinating. What do we do that still upholds that structure? And then the secondary tier of that is within the research, we also, most interpersonal relationship research, whether it be from psychology, sociology, or communication, presupposes that monogamy exists. So when you look at measures on relationships that ask about marital life, have you cheated, all this kind of stuff, you don't see questions that make it seem as though consensual non-monogamy is actually a feasible thing. So you'll see, are you married? Have you had extramarital sex? Well, both of these things could be true, but it might not be cheating if the partner has an agreement with their spouse, essentially, that they can have extramarital sex. And so there's a lot of measures that are just outdated that basically fold in this idea of compulsory monogamy that I think skew a lot of the research that we've had about cheating as well. Um, so when it comes down to it, that's one of the reasons why I looked at monogamy, understanding the cultural implications, understanding how it impacts research, understanding how it impacts our behavior, and then how that all informs why there is a larger movement towards um, different types of non-monogamies because there's a bunch of them. Yeah. What are some of the non-monogamous, uh, what do we call them? Categories, hierarchies, or what, what would we label those? I think it's important to talk about like cheating is technically non-monogamy. So I usually qualify it by saying uh, consensual non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy. Um, to me, that's kind of an umbrella term that can also be open relationships is another way. Um, if you look, if you think about non-monogamy as kind of a spectrum, um, you could put relational anarchists on one side where all relationships are created based on the people and what they want and what they desire. There's not a lot of 
cultural framework that informs what those relationships look like. And on the all the way on the other side, it might be um, like closed swap swingers, where they only swing with a certain group of people, right? So you can see this idea of what's being sort of navigated here is both the ethical um, sexual relationships, but also also ethical, emotional sort of connections. And how do you guide that? So in between there, in between swinging, you also have um, what Dan Savage has coined as monogamish, um, which is like, ah, sometimes we invite a third in, or maybe we have an area code rule where people can sort of play with sexual behavior outside of a certain area code or in other area codes. Um, you then have things like polyamory, um, which is multiple loves, the intention for having multiple committed um, long-term emotional and sexual connections and relationships, which of course you might have some others in there, right? Um, and then it sort of hedges more and more towards that relational anarchy. You mentioned rules uh, earlier, like uh, having the area code rule or inviting a third rule. Are those rules helpful? Um, if there's non-monogamous folks that are listening here, they're probably aware that there's all kinds of stinks out there about whether or not rules are acceptable or should they be boundaries or should they be called something different. I coach people <laughs> and when it comes down to it, in my opinion, if your relationship benefits from hardline rules, set those damn rules and uphold those boundaries. Um, a lot of people just talk about these nuances and say like, I don't want to be held down by rules. I don't want to be governed by rules. My relationship shouldn't have rules. I want to call them something different so that they feel better. Right. That's fine. If that's also for you, like, cool. I get that. Um, but when it comes down to it, different things work for different people. And sometimes you need rules. Um, boundaries are a little bit different. Um, boundaries are often sort of the space in which you're able to uphold your own self-care and self-love in relationship with other people. Whereas with a rule, it's kind of governing what happens outside of that relationship, if that distinction makes sense. So boundaries can be seen within the relationship. Rules tend to be what happens outside of that relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. To me, at least, it seems to be a lot more focused on what's happening with non-monogamy. Like, it's just the alternative to monogamy, whereas in looking at monogamous relationships and polyamorous, non-monogamous relationships, there are things that can be learned from both, but I don't see a lot of attention being brought to where there's that overlap or connecting piece. Yeah, so... I focus on communication at large, and I think that everyone, regardless of their relationship type, needs to learn communication skills. Um, and these basic communication skills are things like listening. What are boundaries? What are What is privacy? Um, how do you talk about things without um, imposing... How do I want to say this? Oftentimes we speak from a place of something that's not necessarily true, but it's stories that we're telling ourselves. Brene Brown is a researcher who studies shame, and she's really brought this to the fore lately. And she likes to frame things in the way of, like, the story that I'm telling myself is this. And that can be really an inviting way to open conversations. If you're a fan of nonviolent conversations, it's framing it as I instead of you. There's lots of different tools that you can use that sort of makes complicated conversations more inviting. So we talk about negotiation. We talk about bargaining. We talk about... Um, all kinds of different stuff. And so when it comes down to it, 
I think that we frame it in certain types of relationships because those relationship types really need that kind of communication. Um, any, any resource that you'll find on polyamory or non-monogamy says communication is the biggest thing, right? And the thing that I always found ironic about it is these are people who don't study communication, who are yelling about how communication needs to happen. And that's why I went into communication because I was like, okay, let's see, let's check this out. Um, <laughs> and the more that I did it, the more that I a hundred percent agree with it. But when it comes down to it, like therapists aren't trained in communication necessarily they're trained in what happens in your head which is a certain kind of communication sure but there is sort of a a, a difference there um so when it comes down to it i think that functionally compulsory monogamy limits what we say to each other because we have cultural expectations about what that is so when you say to someone, I want to be in a monogamous relationship, you're not necessarily defining what monogamy means to you and your boundaries around that, what creates certain feelings, what creates feelings of love. Like we don't talk about that shit because we're told how to do it. There are scripts for those things. When you start to deviate from that point of compulsory monogamy into just an intentional monogamous relationship or other types of open relationships, you start realizing like, holy crap. I don't know what love means. <laughs> what does love mean when my partner tells me that? How does them saying I love you at different points, how does that make that change? And how does defining things actually matter? Um, and so when it comes down to it, learning across the board is important, not only based on the relationship type, but based on the cultural fissures that we experience in communication at large. Um, and this is one thing that, especially if you have any non-monogamous audiences that are out there, there's also, in addition to like arguments about whether or not you have rules or boundaries, there's also lots of arguments over like, well, how many different labels do we need for different terms and shit like that? And the more labels we have, the better we're able to articulate ourselves, the better we're able to actually have conversations with people who understand what we mean the more we're able to define what we're talking about the greater ease we find in communication so i find myself getting really frustrated when people are like well i don't want the labels that's telling me that you are intentionally trying to be misunderstood um use the labels even if those labels are definitions to help people understand where you're coming from because they'll never learn through osmosis like <laughs> i will never just be able to like avatar you and understand what's happening in your head and body right and so when it comes down to it like this idea of labels I think we'll continue to have more and more labels to understand the complexities of human identities. And I think that they're great. And shoot, if you have to Google what something means, good thing Google's at your fingertips. Yeah. Just type it in there. Uh -huh. <laughs> and on the other side of that, though, like I understand that people don't want to be labeled or don't want to be identified. And part of me thinks that that's just because of a misinterpretation of what a label is because like you and I having a conversation you can say the word black and what I think about black like I can attach race to it I can attach my clothing I can attach different objects whereas you could just be talking about your screen being black because you can't see me right now you know so it's kind of the same thing there so how do we begin to communicate what our labels mean to us to another person yeah and that's where we intentionally define terms um I will, I'll use the word love, for example. So many people just say I love you and they never talk about what the hell that means. 
And we oftentimes conflate love with things like commitment, which isn't necessarily what love means for some people. Um, it might actually mean like, I love you so much. I can't commit to you because like, I see that I'm not good for you. And so what do these little moments mean? And how do we conflate these terms? Um, marriage is another big one. Saying the word marriage means a lot of things to people, oftentimes conflated with monogamy. Not entirely accurate, right? Not like, sure, if you are tied to someone bound by law, that doesn't mean that they're emotionally or sexually exclusive. That means that they can share insurance. They literally have like contractual bounds by the government, sometimes for religious purposes, but that's a bigger fissure as we move forward. And so when it comes down to it, defining those terms is really important. And so yes, use those labels, use those labels intentionally. You can define it for yourself. And yeah, it takes time. Yeah, yeah. communication, commitment. Yeah, communication and making sure that you're heard can feel kind of exhausting. And that's, that's what it is. It's a privilege to not take your time and expect people to understand you. And to me, that's something like when we talk about if we want to pull from like what blackness is, it's a privilege that I don't define what whiteness is. I don't define it because it is that it's on the cultural hierarchy. Like it's both seen and unseen. It's not supposed to be seen because it holds power. And anytime you pin it down, anytime you call forth whiteness, you get all kinds of weird shit. Like people get all kinds of weird about what whiteness is. And that's a privilege. That's because pinning it down means that it has to mean something in a moment. And that meaning is, both simultaneously threatening and defining and that can be problematic for some people and for anyone who's on the line wondering am i monogamous am i non-monogamous or which do i identify as how do you know what's for you if you're questioning it so it seems like there's two different things you're kind of asking and the first thing that i want to address is this idea that if you decide to be monogamous you decide to be monogamous until you don't. If you decide to be non-monogamous, you decide to do that until you don't. And then it comes down to like, are you being ethical or are you being an asshole? Like, <laughs> like if you decide to be monogamous and then you cheat on someone, you're being an asshole. Like, don't make that decision if you're not going to uphold it. Like, basic ethical behavior, right? If you decide to be non-monogamous and you happen to only be dating one person, that doesn't mean your polyamory goes away. It just means that maybe at that point in time, like your stress at work is too high and you don't have the time and you don't have the resources to treat people how you want to treat them. It doesn't mean you're no longer monogamous, polyamorous rather. It just means that you don't have the capacity for it. And so like this idea of segregating our relationships with the rest of our life is another thing that we have to really think about, especially when you have multiple partners coming in simultaneously um, how do you manage that kind of thing one way in which you manage it is upon entering having the self-knowledge of what you want and this is another rub that I get a lot when I work with people who are just transitioning they say well what if I don't know what I want and I say well take the fucking time to think about it like <laughs> you need to do that work no one magically is going to pull that out of you yes relationships are co-created one of my favorite quotes in all time is by a woman named Leslie Baxter, Dr. Leslie Baxter. And she says, in the act of mutual authoring, selves become. So yes, as you enter into a relationship with someone, you might learn some shit about yourself, God willing, and things might change over time. So you need to enter into a relationship understanding that you're both growing, thriving, active human beings. You're not locking yourself into who you were when you met. 
But that being said, you should have done the self-work on the front end to figure out the kind of relationships that you want, to talk about whether or not you're emotionally available. If you're working 90 hours a week, you already have a wife and two kids, like you're probably not going to have the biggest emotional capacity. And if you tell someone that you do, like, I get that's being an asshole, like lay out (laughs) the shit that you are capable of giving, understand that that might evolve and change over time and create a relational environment where growth is encouraged and expected. And that's something that like most people step in. Well, I don't know what I want. I'm like, that's you being lazy. Like be lazy (laughs) in that laziness are people often relying on their significant other to help them find out what they want. It can be. I think there's all kinds of different reasons people do that. Okay. Um, Sometimes people feel scared about non-monogamy, and so they don't want to necessarily come out with it from the get-go. They want to, like, feel it out or, like, you know, look at the OkCupid questions to see if they might be (laughs) okay with non-monogamy. And, like, that's fine. But, again, that's not setting yourself up for success in your relationships. If you want a relationship where you have clear communication, shoot, you should start it with clear damn communication. when it comes down to it, it's one of the reasons why I really I love and I advocate for dating apps. As long as you actually put on there like the things you identify as, um, because it really helps filter it out. One of the really tough thing about polyamory and non-monogamy was I started doing this before OkCupid gave us that option, and so literally when someone messaged me that I was interested in, I had to be like, I have two boyfriends, like, <laughs> and a cat, and three other people who are in my polycule, like. <laughs> I have four hours a week on Tuesdays from 12 to 4. <laughs> People yeah. would be like, who is this woman? And I'd be like, yeah. That organization there, you really do have to know yourself. You have to know what you can handle, what you can be involved with. And a lot of us just haven't gotten there yet. If we are there, there's so many people who struggle with finding people who are there. People's a crapshoot of like online timing of who you're open to and attracted to like sometimes shit works sometimes it doesn't sometimes you adjust because you meet someone who does affect you Mm because most of the time people surprise us like that's sort of the beauty of relating is that these things happen um and for me one of the reasons why i was drawn to polyamory all those years ago was because i learned that for me i learned best in relationships about myself i'm able to do a lot of work through those and when i meet someone who i connect to i want that relationship to be able to evolve organically and as a result of that like i don't i i'm rarely like dating I'm rarely putting myself out there on the dating field. I have my significant others and I am, that's enough. Um, It's when I wind up meeting someone, I'm like, shit, do they work? Does that experience make sense? Um, How can it make sense? And does it work for them as well? And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it's someone who lives two blocks away from me. Sometimes it's someone who lives across the world and you're just like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, can I honor what this connection means? And can it be something that's beneficial for both people? And can you get through that kind of shitty stuff and figure out like what that means mm-hmm. and make something happen with it? And to me, that's the beauty of it is that um, I sort of, I, I call myself polyamorous. I sort of teeter in a little bit of um, relational anarchy, but there is a lot of structure to what I do. And to me, relational anarchy is very politically tied by using the word anarchy. It is very politically tied. And I just, to be perfectly honest, I just don't know enough about it. Um, And so I don't feel super comfortable using that term all the time because of my own 
ignorance, basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So when it comes down to it, it's like people do things for different reasons. People will meet for different reasons. And what you do know about yourself in that moment is important. So that relationship is ongoing. And the other skills that you can learn, like get a fucking bullet journal and schedule things like share it with your partner make it happen um there are skill sets that you can use but then there's other things where it's intuitive and you just have to go with it bear with me as i do this and you can see i don't know if you can still see me or not but i have my hands out in one hand there's monogamy and the other hand there's non-monogamy okay really want this to be a binary don't you Uh, no yeah and i hate that i have to do that but it helps me with the labels and the definitions okay if you are a non-monogamous person and you're in a relationship and your partner catches you texting communicating with or providing extensive emotional support to someone that they perceive as a threat over time you know it's like something that continues to happen could that be defined as cheating? And then, ah, damn it, I can't get away from it. But then on the non-monogamous side, let's say you're polyamorous and you're doing the same thing. It doesn't mean you're in a relationship, right? How do you define cheating? So, okay, I'm talking from my past experiences where I'm sure that there are several monogamous people who could relate. If you're in a relationship with someone and their attention uh, or time is now being redirected to another person that they feel threatened by for you as their significant other, then they could view that as cheating or violating the unspoken contract between or code expectations between you both. Uh, about your relationship because now there is another person on the outside getting what belongs to them so my question is and i'm comparing these two (laughs) and in a poly relationship let's just say that there's someone that you enjoy talking to you enjoy whatever it is the connection that you have just because you speak with interact with or have exchanges with them on a regular basis that doesn't mean you're in a relationship with that person right yeah so to me it sounds like you're talking about two very separate things the first one is jealousy, and the second one is cheating. So when you're talking about a threat, um, jealousy is between three people. You, your partner, and a perceived threat, right? Um, that perceived threat might be a person. It might be a job that takes time away. It might be all kinds of different things. But it's figuring out whether or not that threat is real or perceived. Now, if that person really is taking time away from you, or if their job is taking time away, like your jealousy little antennas that went off are actually right right like yes your body has identified that your partner is allocating time that you want to someone else your jealousy is real it's founded success listen to your body fantastic but now it comes down to like okay what do you do about that right is it saying like you don't get to work anymore (laughs) is it saying like don't allocate your attention to that person in monogamous frameworks it tends to be more that like drawing a line not all the time by any means at all. But a lot of times monogamous folks feel like they have the say on their partner's connections to other people. So they can say like, I don't want you to talk to that person because I feel jealous and it's taking time away from me. Now, we're also talking about what cheating is defined as. And you also defined cheating as breaking the expectations within the relationship, right? So that's why why it's two different things. We're talking about jealousy, feelings of jealousy, and then what cheating is. In monogamous relationships, If you are doing something that is outside of what the expectations are, say you like, I don't know, send a boob shot, like 
no, <laughs> that's probably perceived as cheating by your partner, right? Because you're breaking the expectations that you're sexually sort of only seeing them and certain parts of our bodies are only supposed to be reserved for that kind of relationship, right? Does cheating happen in non-monogamous relationships if it's defined as breaking expectations? 100% yes. Yeah, like if you are talking to your partner and they tell you like, I'm not having sex with this person, but they go off and bang them, that's cheating regardless of the relationship type. That is lying, that is being an asshole, that is unethical behavior. Mm -hmm. You cannot consent to what you don't know. And so if you're not being offered that information, that is cheating. Does jealousy also happen in non-monogamous relationships? 100% yes. Um, does like when my partner is sleeping with someone else and their new relationship energy is all like high and jazzed and they only want to have sex with them for a little while. Cause sometimes that happens in new relationships. And I'm like, but I want to have sex too. Like, yes, like that thread is real. <laughs> that thread is there. What do you then do with it? And here's sort of the distinction between lots of times, and I'm going to specifically say compulsory monogamy versus non-monogamy is that you are acknowledging that your partner can engage with other people. And so we have to turn what jealousy means a little bit. What Are you still getting your needs met or are you just sad because your partner's sharing their body with someone else and you've been trained that that's wrong and bad and it hurts and it does. And what can you do to take care of yourself during that time? Once you get your needs met, once you acknowledge your needs are met, like can you then self-soothe? Ask your, ask your partner to help soothe. Look out at your friends and have them soothe. Like what tools are in your toolbox to soothe those jealous feelings? Um, because jealousy is just an emotion like anything else. Like you don't just magically get rid of it because you decide that you want to bang multiple people simultaneously. Like it's just how do you deal with it? And in compulsory monogamy, we're trained that jealousy either shouldn't happen at all or it's indicative of care. And so it's not like, let's have a tool that you then engage with. But lots of times people who are in compulsory monogamous relationships don't like that. So they then seek out the toolbox. So that's another thing that we can talk about, about like monogamy, compulsory monogamy, once you step into intentional monogamy, we can start working through some of this shit, some of these this training that we have and give ourselves better skill sets to communicate about what we're feeling. Jealousy being a big one that's been heralded in the non-monogamous community because a lot of our behaviors basically elicit jealousy. Okay. <laughs> and so you got to look that green-eyed monster in the eye and say, like, I feel you, you jerk. I'm going to cry in the bathtub now. <laughs> I'm so happy that you define cheating because I don't know if this is a common misconception, but before I became exposed to consensual non-monogamy, I always thought that polyamorous people can't cheat on one another they absolutely can <laughs> because the most value that has been placed um, in my experience on monogamous relationships has been sex in polyamorous relationships then you can tell me if this is a misconception at all but because your partner knows that you have sex with other people you're aware of this happening so now there's no cheating but the way that you just define cheating that's not true. It's just simply not true. I define cheating as when you have an expectation in the relationship that's broken. It's what I yell a lot about not being an asshole. And that's part of it. Okay. <laughs> now, we want to touch on some of the myths and realities of polyamorous, open, unscripted, non-monogamous relationships and uh, go into some of those details. 
who is monogamous. I, again, we have to call it compulsory monogamy. It's the culture we've grown up in. Generally, if you live um, in the Western world, compulsory monogamy is a given, um, but that's also in a lot of other cultures throughout the world. Um, it's expected because it's connected to the history of marriage. Um, marriage is a really strong social expectation that we have because not only does it uphold um, romantic relationship ideals and expectations, but it's also governmentally driven. It's also societally driven. People talk about family being sort of the, I don't even, I don't know what to call it, like the the tie that binds together societies. And so when you start like deconstructing the family, that's when people talk about like the fabric of America is falling apart. And it's like, all right, okay. If that's what you believe, cool. And so when it comes down to it, that compulsory monogamy really is ingrained into us. And you can see this everywhere. It's in our songs. It's in our music. It's in our songs and music are the same thing. Um, it's, in, <laughs> it's in our movies. It's in the stories that surround us. It's oftentimes, mostly for about 95% of the population, it's all of the relationships that we see around us as well. Um, so compulsory monogamy is a root. It is it is the water that we swim in. And it's not until you start sort of dissecting the water, trying to see it, all that kind of stuff, you start to lean into sort of other options that become available. Yeah. Okay. Now for the big question. Drum roll, please. <laughs> Who's non-monogamous? Well, that's a big question because it depends on, again, how you're defining what non-monogamy is and different... Let me ask you this the way that I want I want to ask it, but I want to be politically correct. I always thought that hippies and old rich white people were in open relationships. Okay. So typically hippies and old white people are more attached to the swinging side of things. Um, swingers typically are associated with that demographic, that like 1970s free love, but now it's... 2019 what happened to those people like that's sort of what it's rooted in and oftentimes that's attached to swinging swinging is um typically again there are some folks who deviate from this um definition so if you ever meet someone who says i'm a swinger like ask them what does that mean to you um typically it means that they have uh, sex outside of their relationship and oftentimes there's not like deep romantic bonds they might have a friendship with these people that they engage with but they don't intend to have like ongoing romantic relationships with them it's more about sexual engagement and sexual fulfillment and that kind of stuff um when it comes down to it, interestingly enough, in a book that's called The Lifestyle, I can't remember who it's by, but he presupposes actually that swinging came about during World War One when troops thought that they're, um, they wouldn't be coming home from the war. And so before they went out, they would essentially bond by a bunch of different couples having sex together so that they would ensure that their wives who were left back here um, would be taken care of when they died, basically. That's what he, there's some interesting sort of historical arguments around that, but they also presuppose a lot of times that folks who are swingers are like super liberal, real democratic. <laughs> That's sort of what the, the idea is. But interestingly enough, it actually tends to skew more politically conservatively. Um, and you find these little populations, these little pockets of swingers that are actually really conservative. And they all tend to be that way because they're protecting each other's identities. Um, they, it's not something that they're out about, for example. 
as that has changed over the years, like that's very much evolved. The swinging community is broad and diverse now. However, there are lots of different ways in which that sort of community is still governed and policed by not only who is let in, but also the language that surrounds it and all that kind of stuff. So swingers aside, the other interesting thing is thinking about polyamorous folks. Before we go to the next level on swingers, you said something interesting. You said that they want to protect their identity. So people having their identities protected, are we talking about people who are typically in the media or in the public eye who don't want to be seen as something outside of what they're expected to be? Oh, yeah. Sexually deviant doctors, lawyers, like anything that might discredit their profession, um, anything like if their family found out, if they're wildly and deeply Christian, like all these things that direct us to, I like we, for a lot of people, we stand on the foundation of monogamy for goodness for professionalism, for all kinds of different things. Like monogamy has meaning. And so when you start to deviate from that, like imagine if you were a pediatrician who's a swinger and it comes out to all of the people who you are practicing with or for that you're a swinger. Like some people might be like, damn right, high five, you're a great pediatrician. Lots of other times like that would come with like the crumbling of their reputation. And so when it comes down to it, like the protection of those things is really important. But as we sort of look at what sexual deviants are and all that kind of stuff and start to break apart those ideas, some of that is shifting. Um, but it's it's still like deeply stigmatized. Um, when it comes down to it, non-monogamy at large is not legally protected. You can be fired for coming out as any kind of non-monogamous, unless you're cheating, which is kind of funny, or, you know, you're a white man, in which case you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so when it comes down to it, like there's lots of different things that influence that, basically, that need to be protected. And then the next thing you were going to go into was you went from swingers to polyamorous. Is that where you were going? Okay. Polyamory is kind of a fun subset of non-monogamy because it has started to be identified. And as a result of being identified, it can be studied. It can be quantified. It can be um, identified. You can actually, as a researcher, make a call and say, like, hey, I'm looking for poly folks. Do you define yourself as poly? Great. Come be a participant, right? Get your $20 Amazon gift card. Um, So when it comes down to it, the research now highly skews the polyamorous population to be – upper class, highly educated white folks, (laughs) usually in larger metropolises, larger uh, urban areas. Um, And the thing that I have found that's really interesting about this particular phenomenon is I don't actually believe that that is a real representation of what polyamory is. I feel like traditional, the traditional academy is one of the primary gatekeepers of the way in which we have knowledge. And I think people of color and particularly black people are very skeptical about (laughs) academics and research for damn good reason based on the way in which they have been treated in the academy. And so as a result of that, like having to come out as someone who isn't monogamous, so they're already defying the norms, and then being identifying as a person of color, like that sort of stacking of identities makes them less likely to be involved in the research. Um, And then I also think another layer on top of that 
is that for a lot of these places that are highly white, um, they don't intentionally create inclusive communities. And if you're not intentionally creating inclusive communities, you have a disinclusive community. And so you have to create these spaces intentionally in order to make that happen. If you have a panel of polyamorous folks and it's just like a gaggle of white guy doms or a gaggle of white guy doms and like punctuated here and there by white ladies, white ladies really like to research relationships. I am a white lady, I know. Um, and so, like, we also kind of come to the fore as, as that. You need to intentionally have panelists that represent different backgrounds. If that's fucking hard, what's, what's happening in your community there? What does that tell you about your community? What does that tell you about who is included and whose voices are not included? And how do you change that? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a hard question. That community building component is difficult because we do live in a culture that has systemic racism deeply rooted within it and just to be honest there's not a whole lot of like nah, that's a lie um white folks aren't necessarily doing their work um to make those communities inclusive and as a result of that they're just saying well i invited them i don't know why no one's coming and it's like mm. <laughs> i'm curious though this seems like it has two parts to it it's a matter of not putting in enough effort to get people to want to come or feel safe coming. And then it's a matter of just not wanting to come because I don't feel safe. Yeah, you say that this is safe for me to participate in, but at the same time, you know, yeah, I identify as non-monogamous, I'm black, and who's to say that if I don't come here, you're not going to discredit me some kind of way? Or There's so many things that can happen there that will lead us into a completely different conversation, but are these opportunities out there for minorities, people of color who identify as polyamorous to be able to get involved and have their voices heard and have their input? I absolutely do believe so. And I do think that as this conversation evolves and is called for more and more, the polyamorous community is holding itself accountable much better. Not everywhere, by all means, but there are voices that are coming to the fore. There are people who are being sought out. Um, And the thing that's unfortunate about that, though, is like, like Kevin Patterson, he has written a book that's called Love is Not Colorblind, and so he talks a lot about this idea of inclusivity in the non-monogamous communities. He's a wonderful resource, but when it comes down to it, like, the other thing that white people can't do is look at the same person and be like, please demonstrate, like, please be the person who comes in and talks about this kind of thing. Like, at some point, like, we need to hold ourselves responsible, we need to call ourselves, or the, we need to be doing the work within our own community to create these race conversations that actually hold white folks accountable to creating this space as well. So yes, I do think there is lots of room for non-monogamous folks, uh, black folks, any people of color out there who are interested in like pursuing and especially talking about non-monogamy, absolutely. But I also think that that has to be a really hard place to be when it comes to that emotional labor of like, well, now I have to talk about like my non-monogamy as well as my blackness and like the weight that that has to have, like there also should be support systems in place that need to start to be there in order to help deconstruct all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I feel particularly passionate about simply because I, 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 I ache for inclusivity in that kind of way. Um, 
and it's work that I, I keep trying to do and like I will keep fucking up because that's how it goes and I try to tell myself that like every time I talk about this stuff it's a matter of calling those other white people to the fore and being like hey like are you that ass hat like check your privilege read white fragility like do the things you need to be doing know that you're also learning and like you will make a mistake you will be vulnerable in this place but fuck man that's you got to be here for it because mm -hmm. we can't keep engaging in systemic racism and just expect it to also dissipate like if romantic relationships if interpersonal relationships are truly indicative of this fabric of society then it's in these places where we have the opportunity to create tiny shifts that change that fucking system and so when it comes down to it our interpersonal relationships are some of the richest places to start shifting culture and if you're intentional about creating those interpersonal spaces in a way where you're thoughtful about racism where you're thoughtful about inclusivity where you have these conversations in places where you do feel like you can be vulnerable and your partner can see you grow and they can check you and you don't react out of like but i'm not a bad person instead you say like huh i didn't realize i shouldn't be using that word mm -hmm. <laughs> and you change like that's where that shit makes a difference yeah and as you talk about this i'm always trying to look at all sides possible whenever i have conversations especially stemming around uh race but we're talking about sex we're talking about relationships we're talking about a sense of community so when we're talking about a polyamorous community not being inclusive to let's say black people for example white people traditionally are attracted to what they're attracted to black people attracted to what they attracted to so because of this because i like what i like does that mean i am intentionally not being inclusive or if because I like what I like and I don't really care to be included at polyamorous white party or whatever it may be, I really just don't care to show up there. I have my community here. Is there a need for someone to step out of their comfort and another to step out of their comfort to come together and try and create this space for everybody who, who may not even recognize that there's an issue? I can't speak for everyone. And so when I talk about this stuff and if I make mistakes like that, that shit happens. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, like I'm not talking about forcing someone who is monogamous intentionally into considering polyamory. Like that's not it. But I do want to talk about the ways in which different bodies are seen and fetishized and how that does bring to the fore systemic racism. And so when you see that like question, I'm thinking about OkCupid right now. Um, I've been engaging with OkCupid. Sometimes I help my clients write OkCupid profiles. So <laughs> I've been looking at OkCupid a lot the past few weeks. Um, but there's one question that says like, do you, tr do you only want to date someone of your own race? Something like that. Um, and like, if you answer yes to that <laughs> and you don't think critically about why like that to me is mildly problematic especially if you are like a white human who like that you need to fucking acknowledge that people of color black bodies have been overtly sexualized for the duration <laughs> of what the united states is like sexuality and blackness is is a thing that you need to think about and if you're
you're not thinking about why you're answering that question and what the person who you stand next to means and all of that kind of shit, like you need to do that work. Um, and I, I do have a really hard time with, I can't, I, 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 I need to do work around this myself. Like I can't draw a line in the sand and say like, you're inherently a, a bad person if you answer that question, yes because I haven't talked to you about why you're talking about that. But I can say that I would venture to guess that your answer is rooted in some kind of thoughtful consideration about race. Um, not, or lack, not a thoughtful consider about, a not thoughtful consideration about race is what I wanted to say. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that actually addresses the question. I struggle to ask the question the way that I want to ask it. And it's just simply a matter of, I mean, where you got to at the end of there was, have you not questioned why? Why aren't you attracted to someone of another race or of other backgrounds? I appreciate you bringing that up and I appreciate you taking the time to um, be with your client for you to look at that question because that's a serious question. There will be people that argue, I don't need to justify this. Being able to do that self-work and understand why do I think what I think? And then ask yourself, okay, is this contributing to the problem or the solution? And how do I thoughtfully engage with what created that thought process in me? Yeah. And so we're not saying here, and I want to make this clear, like we're not saying, oh, man, I think I'm racist. I need to go fuck a black person, you know, or anything like that. That is not what we're saying. (laughs) What we're saying that. Yeah. What we're saying is to challenge your reasoning for possibly contributing to um the systematic racism and challenge the things that you think sexually about these things like about like the bodies that we talk about with regards to this and like what that what their sexuality and how it's framed culturally and these cultural meshes messages that we get about which type of body is like supposed to get which kind of touch and love and all that kind of stuff and this this goes across race it goes across age as well like when we think about older people like they they aren't supposed to be touched right when we think about ability there is this idea there's this stigma that folks who have a disability they 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 don't have sex or they don't have sexual relationships like there's all kinds of different ways we frame essentially bodies and what touch they're supposed to get and as a result of the kind of touch they're supposed to get the kind of relationships they're supposed to engage in and then oftentimes we stand back and look at that like we're like a weird audience member right but then you get put in these situations where it's like we'll talk about what you want like do you want like an able-bodied white human and what does that mean and how do you like think about and think through these steps and a lot of that's messy and you'll find resistance and that's the beginning of realizing like holy shit this is what looking at a system means and this is what's hard about it and when it comes down to it folks who are do have a minority identity have lived that shit and so they have to live it every day and then if you look at them and you're like well teach me about it (laughs) it's like well no do the fucking work yourself like you are stepping into your privilege when you say like teach me about these things the other option you have is teach me about these things and i will pay you generously with money that is the other thing that you can do not just like hey do you have an ear like no like they are emotionally laboring to teach you something and if you're not paying them or doing your own damn work by reading the wonderful works that have already been provided like that's when it comes down to like thinking through these things I just feel like I ranted and said you a lot. 
I'm talking about the cultural you. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're on the same page there. And um, I think that media messages are a very heavy contributor to our perceptions on these things. Because uh, I'll give you an example. Like, part of why I believed that old, rich, white women were the ones who were in some form of a polyamorous relationship would be because I'll find myself in places that sometimes I don't know how I got in. (laughs) So um, like fundraising events, for example, I was at a fundraiser and I told you this story already, but for the listeners, I was at a fundraiser a year and a half ago, two years ago, there were certain foods there. There were scallops. And at this particular fundraiser, um, they had the chef there. So they were always preparing more food. So there's one scallop left and I take the scallop and there's a woman who's to my right, I looked at her, and this is an older white woman, lots of jewelry, makeup, and all those kinds of things, like really huge breasts. Oh, I will not forget that. And so she looked at me. I was like, oh, shit, you know, me just being a nice person. Like, here, you can have this one. I'll just wait for the next one. And she flirts with me and was like, oh, you're going to feed it to me? And I was like, oh, shit, is this what's happening right now? I'm like telling my friends about it. And they're like, oh, well, yeah, she wanted you to be a bull. I was like, what the fuck is a bull? So I go and I Google this and I'm like, oh, shit, this goes back to the sexualization of black bodies. And after that instance, you know, I look back and I'm looking at other times where something like that's happened. And part of me is like, damn, that's really fucked up. But then another part's like, well, I mean, well, what would that be like? You know, there's a curiosity and then there's like this challenging of what's going on. And again, it's just like, did she believe that because this is something that she genuinely likes? Was she genuinely attracted or was this some fetishization of a black body at that point in time? And I think that narcissism is always going to kind of be there, you know, Um, I think that that it's not always God willing or always, but I think that that skepticism is a, it's a reasonable place to be, but that skepticism, that little voice in the back of your head is one of those. That's what I'm talking about. Like it's what makes a place inclusive or disinclusive. It's the way that you're treated. It's like, shit, what do we know? And have you done some of that self work to figure out what's going on there? And how can you have a deeper conversation about it? Cause you'll never know unless you sat her down and we're like, mm, want me to be a fool. You know, <laughs> is that actually what you're going for here? Um, but when it comes down to it, I think that skepticism, that little voice is part of what the systemic issues are mm-hmm. telling you. That's in your body. Yeah. And I'm a firm believer that we can pick up on people's intention pretty easily. And if we just question it or ask the questions like, hey, is this what you meant? Is this what you want? Like, do you really want me to feed this to you because you just can't <laughs> feed it to yourself? I think even with couples who maybe are just looking for something like that, but people have been like overly friendly and like buying drinks and then hearing my friends in the background, oh, this is what they want. And these are like friends who engage in polyamory. And I'm like, what the fuck are y'all talking about? And this was just something I didn't understand. So even as someone who had a particular belief, I know that in surrounding myself with people who don't think like me, don't look like me, don't believe the things that I believe, then challenging my beliefs with the experiences that I have with them, that's been a great space for growth expansion of my own perspective and to be able to just go oh you know I can see this for what it is and it's also taught me to question things because traditionally I just haven't questioned things and I think that that's probably one of the bigger takeaways from this podcast episode is to take the time to know yourself and then be able to question things and have an honest answer have an honest answer about how you got there 
Yeah, one thing that's driven me throughout all of this is understanding, as I've already said this a few times, the ways in which our interpersonal relationships fit into culture and the way that culture is driven by these systems. And when it comes down to it, you can't escape things like looking at race when it comes down to looking at relationships, because the way we relate is informed by the people who are around us. And so that's that's a big, huge part of that. And so when I have... I have different ways in which I work with people, but I have these three sort of spheres that I look at as I work with people, cultural, interpersonal, and intrapersonal. So these are the sorts of things that I teach through. And looking through that cultural lens and understanding the way, like I've called it this before, the water that we swim in, it, it informs the interpersonal and it informs the intrapersonal. And so one way in which I look at this a lot, particularly with women, is looking at internalized misogyny and how we tell ourselves things like, I'm not like the other girls. And it's like, well, why aren't you like the other girls? Because we're taught that being a girl is a shitty thing. <laughs> and so you don't want to be like the other girls because you have internalized misogyny. Like, that's what that is. And so when it comes down to it, looking and projecting ahead and thinking about race and thinking about the ways in which I can influence people to be better is to call in, like, the fucking white ladies who voted for Trump and be like, what are you doing? Like, let's talk about, like, what that actually means and what that looks like and how it's so much bigger than just, like, the economic politic. Like, let's talk about what that actually looks like and what that means and how can we create an environment where this conversation can happen. Because I do think that most people want to be good people. I, I, I try to hold on to, I, as I'm, I'm skeptical about so much other shit, but there's this one part of me that like, when it comes down to it, I think it's rare for people to be like, no, I'm just an asshole and I want to be an asshole and I'm going to keep doing that and I'm going to perpetuate these awful systems. And when it comes down to it, I think people want to be seen as good people, but I don't think that they have the scope to see things differently. And so when it comes to doing what you just said, which is surrounding yourself by different ideas, not a lot of people have that. So when you have someone who does sort of look like them and does sort of present like them, and I, I do present as a very like respectable human. I, I have my doctorate. Like I can, I, I intentionally sometimes talk at those levels so that I can sort of rank, wrangle them in and be like, what the fuck? Like <laughs> this is, this is part of that sort of like, what can I do living in my white cis loosely I define myself more as pansexual now than heterosexual, but most of the time presenting that way. Um, like, what do these identities do for me and how can I understand my privileges, but then also use this to talk about things that people might not find themselves comfortable with talking about and then be like, hey, that's privilege too, and like tap at it. And, <laughs> and then also learn myself and then keep moving that forward. Dr. Stephanie? I have a million and one more questions to ask you that I want to talk about, but being respectful of your time and closing this out, like at a great point where we're at right now, which I'm so grateful for. How can people get in touch with you? The best way to get in touch with me is on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is unscripted relationships. You can also check out my website, which is unscriptedrelationships.com. I'm also writing a book that should be out this summer. Um, <laughs> the tentative goal time for it to drop is the middle of July, um, sometime in there. And that book right now, the running loose title is called Use Your Words. Um, it's about how if we have experiences that are outside of the scripts, 
how you create a language about experiences that aren't already there. Um, so I don't talk a whole lot about, I do have conversations about culture in there. I do have conversations about interpersonal and intrapersonal things. Um, I do talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we talk about here, but it is more about literally the creation of language, the creation of labels, the creation of words. And that will be available on my website and via Instagram and via Amazon when it's ready, but it's not quite ready yet. So, wah, <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie, for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time and for chatting with me and all that jazz. If you like this episode, please like, rate, review, subscribe to, and share this podcast. It really helps us with growing, and it also allows for the podcast players to give us a little bit of promotion so that more people can easily find this podcast. If you like Dr. Stephanie, I encourage you to go and follow her on Instagram, Unscripted Relationships. And if you're interested in the introductory course to opening relationships, then check out her um, website, www unscriptedrelationships.com and sign up for that course. I thought it was great. I think it was very helpful for me and I believe that it can help a lot of other people having access to like that that hands-on format like you're being coached and you have a workbook that challenges you to ask some very tough questions about this and see if this is for you and identify your intention and overall just really help you get a little bit of a better connection with yourself. And I hope to have more guests like this. Um, this was someone who, someone I follow on Instagram, shared a lot of stuff uh, from her, and I found her that way. Um, if you have any guest recommendations, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. I have no problem with contacting anyone who's a great fit for this podcast. Till next time, stay sex positive.